Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Before we start, I just want to say thank you for the patience you've shown with the release of this instalment, part three of Australia's first serial killer manhunt. A lot of the time that I create Forgotten Australia, I'm also working full-time. Things have been a little hectic lately, and that led to the delay. That, and the fact that there's just so much to tell of the third act in Frank Butler's life. A warning, this instalment does contain references to suicide, so listener discretion is advised. It's just before five in the morning on Tuesday the 2nd of February 1897 and all's quiet at Meg's Wharf in San Francisco. There, in quarters above the Harbour Police Station, Australian detectives James McHattie and John Roche are asleep in their bunks. Constable Michael Conroy, he's awake and taking the early morning shift. For two months, he and his colleagues have been on the trail of the man known as Frank Butler, who, back in Australia, allegedly killed three fellows he took mining in the Blue Mountains and beyond. The bodies of Arthur Preston and Captain Lee Weller were discovered in early December, by which time Frank Butler had assumed Weller's identity and gotten work as a swabby on the Swan Hilda, sailing from Newcastle to San Francisco. In pursuit, Detective McHattie and Constable Conroy jumped on a steamer that would cross the Pacific Ocean far faster so they could get to the Golden Gate City first and coordinate with their American counterparts to lay a trap for the killer. Detective Roche travelled even farther. His epic rail and steamer journeys itinerary reading, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Salon, Suez Canal, Naples, Paris, Calais, Dover, London, Liverpool, Ireland, New York, Jersey City, Washington, Chicago, and finally San Francisco, where he arrived a week ago. 
Detective Roche's travels took him 49 days, which is a record for this route. And he would have done it even faster had he not had to stop in London to present the extradition request for Butler to the British government and then set these papers before the US State Department in Washington. By the time Detective Roche got to San Francisco on the 26th of January 1897, the body of Charles Burgess, Butler's first victim, had been found near Parks in western New South Wales. Like the other dead men, he'd been shot in the head and buried in a shallow grave. Day and night, Detectives McHattie and Roach and Constable Conroy are keeping watch, not daring to stray from Meg's Wharf, waiting for word that Swan Hilda is sailing towards the Golden Gate. It's been a gloomy vigil in the wet, cold and foggy San Francisco winter, and the men have to stave off despairing thoughts that their quarry has already defeated them. The city's newspapers love the Frank Butler story, but in the absence of concrete developments in the past couple of weeks, they've made sensation from misinformation and speculation. Reports have been received that Butler has been seen in Honolulu, having somehow gotten ashore at Hawaii, even though Swanhilda wasn't due to stop there. Then, there's conjecture that Butler has burned Swanhilda to the waterline and escaped in a boat, or that he's led the crew in a mutiny and taken over the vessel. The Australian police do their best not to buy into such fanciful stories. But there is a strand of newspaper speculation they take seriously. When Swanhilda arrives, there's a chance heavy fog will conceal the vessel until it's well inside San Francisco Bay. That could give Butler plenty of opportunity to jump overboard, swim to shore and disappear into the city. So the Australian detectives and their American counterparts have ensured the captains of pilot, tug and customs boats have been briefed about Swanhilda. They've been told which signals to use if the vessel is spotted approaching the Golden Gate. Communicating this information to shore quickly will be vital so the Australian and American police can board a revenue cutter, get out there and intercept Swanhilda. Yet the signals and the police approach also need to seem like ordinary maritime business so that the fugitive doesn't realise what's happening and make his escape, or worse, put up a deadly defence. Through late January, nothing is seen and nothing is heard. Tensions rise because Swanhilda is now a week overdue. Then... At around 4.30am on the 2nd of February, a man on a lookout watch at Point Lobos on the southern heads of the Golden Gate hears the sound everyone's been waiting for. Six whistles. He looks out, but he can't see anything in the darkness. Nevertheless, the man knows this is the signal, issued from a tug that's towing Swanhilda in through the Golden Gate. He telephones United States Marshal Barry Baldwin, who's supervising the case for his federal government, and then calls the Australians and their American city police counterparts at Meg's Wharf. Swanhilda is finally here. The big question now, is Frank Butler still aboard? I'm Michael Adams, and this is the third and final instalment of the Forgotten Australia episode, Australia's First Serial Killer Manhunt. Swanhilda had been spotted out to sea at about 12.30 that morning by the crew of the tugboat Active. A pilot named Miller went aboard Swanhilda to help guide the ship towards the Golden Gate. 
Two hours would elapse before this man had the chance to quietly ask Captain Fraser whether the man calling himself Lee Weller was still aboard. Captain Fraser said he was. In fact, Butler slash Weller was right then on the deck in the shadows because he was on the night watch. When the tugboat active began towing Swanhilda, Pilot Miller told its Captain Marshall that everything was alright. So Captain Marshall knew his role now. He was to tow Swanhilda and when close enough to shore, he was to sound the whistle six times. By five o'clock, the Australian police were raring to go, but waiting on the arrival of US Marshal Baldwin and the revenue cutter Hartley that had taken them out into the bay. As the San Francisco Chronicle put it, quote, all the anxiety of two months was crowded into the next few minutes. The sleuths were about to settle the question that had worried them for weeks. Soon they would know whether or not their man was aboard. They felt faint-hearted with fear that he was not. In addition to US Marshal Baldwin, four city police would go with the Australians. They were Sergeant Bunner, who'd been deputised as a federal marshal, and San Francisco officers named Egan, Sylvie and Ferguson. Like the Australians, they were in plain clothes to retain the element of surprise. But Detective McHattie and Constable Conroy, who had both encountered Butler back in Australia, went one step further by pasting fake whiskers to their chins. Australian or American, all the men were taking no chances when it came to self-defence. The Chronicle reported, quote, They crammed revolvers into every available pocket and weighted themselves down with cartridges enough for a pitched battle. US Marshal Baldwin arrived at quarter to six and a few minutes later, the revenue cutter Hartley was steaming out towards the Golden Gate. Off the Presidio, they saw the tug active dwarfed against the big black hull of Swanhilda. In the pre-dawn haze, a few shadowy figures were visible up on deck. Was one of them Frank Butler? And what would he do if he suspected that anything was amiss? The revenue cutter Hartley came alongside Swanhilda. Lines were thrown out and a wooden ladder put up the bark's towering sides. A medical officer went up first and he was met by Captain Fraser. The men had a quiet word. Then the master of the Swanhilda told all hands to assemble for quarantine inspection. As the crew lined up, the American authorities came up the ladder and slipped aboard. After Captain Fraser and the medical officer had inspected three crew members, they came to a man in his late 30s with a bent nose and a big moustache. According to the Chronicle's account, Captain Fraser said, Your turn next, Weller. He then raised and lowered his lantern, another agreed-upon signal, and Sergeant Bunner stepped forward and levelled his revolver at Butler's heart, saying, Up with your hands, you are my prisoner. Before Butler had a chance to do anything, he was pinioned by Egan and Ferguson, who'd come around behind the line of sailors. The prisoner was quickly handcuffed. Now the Australians were aboard, and bewhiskered Constable Conroy confirmed that yes, this was the man they wanted. Frank Butler, a.k.a. Lee Weller, a.k.a. Richard Ash, a.k.a. John Newman, but now best known in the American press as the Monster of the Mountains, was in custody at last. The prisoner was taken below to Captain Fraser's cabin. There, Butler didn't seem phased when Sergeant Bunner read the warrant that charged him with the murder of Lee Weller. Officer Egan said, quote, 
you won't get away now, will you? Butler replied, What the devil do I want to get away for? That old man over there has been reading a pile of rot. It's got nothing to do with me. Given the potential danger involved with the capture of Butler, it seems remarkable now that San Francisco authorities allowed newspaper reporters to join them on the cutter and then on Swanhilda. But newspaper men were present and Butler immediately recognised how he could turn this to his advantage. To the Chronicle's reporter, he said, Put all this down straight. I ain't done nothing that I can't answer for. The first question he had to answer was asked by Officer Egan, who said, What's your right name? The prisoner replied, You say it's Butler. The name I ship by on this ship is my right name. So, for the moment, he was maintaining that he was Captain Lee Weller. Constable Conroy confronted Butler. The Chronicle's reporter wrote, Quote, His boyish face, surrounded by impossible whiskers, injected the first element of comedy into the scene. Pulling the attachment from his chin with a dramatic sweep of the hand, he shouted, Look at me, Butler. Don't you remember me? Butler shot back, No, I don't know you, and I don't want to know you. Yet other newspaper reports had it that Butler said he vaguely recognised Conroy as someone he'd almost done mining business with, back in Sydney. Meanwhile, detectives McHattie and Roche had located the portmanteau that Butler had brought aboard Swanhilda. They'd also found near his bunk a bulldog revolver and a box of bullets. The Australian officers brought these possessions to the cabin. Detective McHattie asked, Are these things yours, Butler? I mean, Weller? The prisoner came back with, What if they are? As a response, it was naive to the point of knuckle-headed because Butler's fate hung on what he'd hung onto and kept in that big suitcase. Butler was hauled up onto the deck, where, to the newspaper reporters, he said, Boys, just tell the people that everything I done, I can plead justification for, and I ain't done nothing wrong. The fuss these people are making? Anybody would think I'd murdered somebody. Officer Ferguson was quoted as saying to the prisoner, Well, You've got the greatest reception of any man that ever came to this port. That might have been true, but Butler came ashore in humiliating fashion, handcuffed and tied with a rope so he could be lowered to the revenue cutter and wasn't able to jump into the bay and drown himself. With Butler on his way to shore, the question that had played on the minds of police and the press for the past two months could finally be answered. What had happened aboard Swanhilda? As it turned out, nothing more than a long, tense time for Captain Fraser and his first mate. After Torpo had hailed Swanhilda and they'd learned they had a murderer aboard, Captain Fraser and his first mate had decided to, well, do nothing but keep watch on Butler and hope that police were waiting for them in San Francisco. The captain told the Chronicle, quote, We decided that Butler had no suspicions and that since he had committed no offence aboard the ship, it would probably be better to let him keep his liberty and not put him in irons. We were very careful to let nothing leak out among the crew and I am confident that neither Butler nor anybody else could have had the least inkling of what the mate and I knew. The captain told the papers that Butler slash Weller had been a model sailor for the whole voyage, hard-working and even religious to the point of sermonising to his fellow crew members. 
from Meg's Wharf, Butler was taken in a patrol wagon to San Francisco's city jail. The contents of the portmanteau were carefully inspected by the Australian detectives. In the big suitcase, they found books and sheet music inscribed to Lee Weller and to his wife. There was even a photo of the late Mrs. Weller, which Frank Butler told one of the American police was his wife. The portmanteau also contained professional certificates belonging to Lee Weller and to Frank Butler Hallwood. There were numerous pieces of jewellery, items of clothing, glasses and nautical tables. Other things in the portmanteau had at some stage belonged to people named Parath, Dixon and Admiral, which the American newspapers, who now put Butler's murder toll at around 20, assumed were some of his victims. Butler admitted to the newspaper men that this did all look pretty black for him, but he maintained to Detective McHattie that it was all very innocent, that he'd bought these things in pawn stores and other places back in Australia, and that the women's jewellery was meant for his sisters in London. Detective Roche asked Butler if he'd sign a list confirming that all these items belonged to him. He did, and he signed as Lee Weller. This was what Detective Roche had wanted. The cramped, backward-sloping Lee Weller signature that Butler had just signed bore no resemblance to the captain's genuine signature, samples of which were in the police's possession. After he was photographed, measured and described in detail in notes, Butler was moved to a federal building where he was held in the US Marshal's office. By mid-morning, the people of San Francisco were wildly excited as news spread that the monster of the Blue Mountains was chained up in a federal building in their city. Government employees, their friends and anyone else who could bluff their way in clamoured for a look at Butler, who sat by the fire in the marshal's office and smoked a cigar he'd been given by one of the detectives. Butler had only been in custody for hours when a woman contacted the police to say that the prisoner was her husband, that they'd married in 1893 and he'd deserted her some months later. She wasn't a hoaxer, merely mistaken as it turned out, but when Butler first heard this development, he was mightily amused. Quote, So, I've got a wife, have I? Well, don't you think she ought to come see me? A wife's place is at her husband's side in time of trouble and I'm in trouble. She might at least send me her sympathy, or a bottle of whiskey. I rather think I'd take the whiskey. In an effort to save face, Butler said he hadn't been surprised at all that detectives had boarded Swan Hilda. That's because he'd been wise to Captain Fraser's suspicions, but he wasn't concerned because he was innocent. At least to the newspapers, Butler now admitted that he wasn't Lee Weller, and that he'd taken the name after the captain had died. Asked how that death had come about, Butler said he didn't know because he wasn't there. So what was his real name then? His reply, quote, I have not told anybody that. They call me Butler. That is good enough. I don't care to say what my name is. Among Butler's visitors were Leonard Stone and John Pidwell, two young attorneys working for a prominent city firm. They claimed they'd come to represent Butler at the behest of one of his San Francisco acquaintances. The lawyers declined to name this mysterious benefactor, as did Butler, most likely because this person didn't exist, and they were working pro bono for the publicity it'd bring the firm. Butler certainly didn't have any money, his brutal crimes having netted him very little in the way of cash. 
At two that afternoon, Butler was taken to the circuit courtroom, Commissioner Heacock presiding, this man having the same sort of powers as an Australian magistrate. The purpose of this hearing was for him to determine the sufficiency of the complaint and probable cause that the defendant had committed it. If Commissioner Heacock was satisfied, the extradition would then be formally authorised by the President of the United States. That was either outgoing White House occupant Grover Cleveland or newly elected but yet to be inaugurated William McKinley. The court hearings began with obstruction and obfuscation that really set the stage for what was to follow. When the court clerk called the name Frank Butler, the accused didn't respond and didn't stand. He would only do so when addressed as Lee Weller. That was despite this pretense being shot down by the first witness to testify, Constable Conroy, who identified him as the man who in Sydney had called himself Frank Hallwood and who'd tried to lure him into the bush to go prospecting. Butler's attorneys then asked for and received a continuance until the following Monday so they could prepare their case. Outside the court, the street was blocked with hundreds of people and hundreds more gawked from windows. Butler was taken to the city prison where he was stripped and searched. American detectives Sylvia Egan now found a small package of strychnine in his hat. It was enough to kill half a dozen men. Again hinting at what was to come, Butler scoffed at any suggestion he'd kept the poison there so he could commit suicide. He even denied it was strychnine, saying that the powder was simply a headache preparation, and in any case, if he'd wanted to do away with himself, he'd had ample opportunity at sea over the past 70 days. Further divorcing himself from reality, Butler told the newspapers that he wanted to sail for Australia at the first available opportunity so he could clear his name in court there. As for the extradition fight that his American lawyers were about to mount, well, that really wasn't his doing. He was just following their instructions and they were just following the letter of the law. That afternoon and evening in the city prison, Butler entertained a stream of visitors until he fell into an exhausted sleep at midnight. The next morning, his crimes, capture, court appearance and his prison cell celebrity dominated the San Francisco Daily newspapers. The Chronicle gave him the front page and two full inside pages. The examiner's coverage was even more extensive, the front page plus three and a half inside pages. The stories that day and in days to come were lavishly illustrated. There were portraits, drawn from life, as they said, for which Butler had happily posed and even taken payment. There were sketches of his arrest at gunpoint and ignominious removal from Swanhilda, along with drawings of the American detectives and bearded and non-bearded versions of the Australian officers. There were illustrations also of the portmanteau and its damning contents. The examiner's picture of such was captioned, quote, The murderer brought with him across the sea the evidence that will be used to hang him. People who'd known Butler in San Francisco as Richard Ashe came forward, and their stories of him sailing in and out of the port in the early 1890s and working in a laundry dovetailed with the biographical information that Butler had started to drip-feed to reporters. Butler also now told more of Lee Weller, he said that he and the captain had gone to Glenbrook with a third man, who he'd identify 
when the time was right. He told the examiner, quote, This partner of mine came into camp one night and said that Weller was dead. I think he told me that he had shot himself accidentally. He continued, I can see now that I made a very great mistake in not reporting Captain Weller's death to the authorities, but it never occurred to me at the time. What did occur to him and this mysterious third man was to divvy up the dead fellow's possessions because Butler claimed this was how things were done down under. After that, Butler said he'd adopted Lee Weller's identity purely because the man's maritime certificates made it easier for him to get a job on a ship. Beyond that, he said he knew nothing of Lee Weller's fate. Though, on reflection, he now thought that perhaps this third man had been a murderer. However implausible, the accused had constructed a story that might, at an outside chance, convince one juror there was reasonable doubt. Thing was, though, Butler had had three full months to come up with this explanation. It had been prudent for him to do so, given he might at some point have to explain why he had a dead man's identity and possessions. Just after his arrest, Butler had been interrogated by Captain Lees, San Francisco's chief of detectives, who listened patiently to this outlandish Lee Weller yarn. Then, San Francisco's top cop produced an Australian newspaper that contained a big article about the disappearance of Arthur Preston and the discovery of this young man's body. This murder victim had, of course, left Sydney with the same man as Lee Weller. Butler was gobsmacked. He'd had no idea Preston had been found, let alone that he stood charged with this murder back in Australia, and so he didn't have any sort of cover story ready to go. Butler clammed up about Preston to Captain Lees, and at this point, he also refused to say anything to the press about this most inconvenient murder victim. Though, true to his flip-flopping form, he would later say that he and Preston had been very good friends, but he didn't have any idea what had become of the young man. Butler had his story about the portmanteau and its contents, which was believed by pretty much no one. That raised the question, why had he hung on to that jewellery, which wasn't worth much, and all those sentimental items which had no monetary value at all? the risk far outweighed any possible material reward. These days, it's widely known that some serial killers take souvenirs from their victims to help them relive their crimes. What surprised me is that even though forensic police work was in its infancy in 1897, this sort of trophy-collecting behaviour was then to some extent understood. Here's the San Francisco Examiner, quote, such foolhardiness can only be explained on the theory that the trinkets of Captain Weller, cheap and valueless as they are, had a fascination for the vulgar mind of the cloutish murderer. They were associated with an event which was one of the most important in Butler's life, and the very fact that they were obtained at the cost of human lives gave them a peculiar value in his mind. Criminologists write that inanimate objects associated with horrible crimes possess a sort of mesmeric influence over the perpetrators of the crimes. Like so many modern serial killers, Butler's fetish seemed to have sealed his fate. The examiner again, quote, If anything is needed to send him to the scaffold, the detectives have but to rummage among Butler's luggage to find it. Frank Butler seemed doomed, but this only increased his celebrity. Hundreds of people, 
some reports claimed thousands queued in the rainy streets of San Francisco to see the murderer. The examiner, quote, Through the courtesy of the police, he has been placed on public exhibition. He is perhaps the first criminal ever incarcerated in a local prison who has enjoyed that distinction. Having waited their turn, each person had a chance to see and chat with the amiable murderer. Butler even did a thriving business by charging a quarter or two for his autograph. However, there were far bigger bucks to be made from souvenirs and performance. A showman paid him $150 for his hat, shoes and belt, which were then put on display in the city. An even more enterprising impresario brought in a phonograph and paid Butler another $150 to read newspaper articles about himself aloud into the machine. These recordings proved popular in Edison electric parlours all across America, and a few months hence, people would flock to one of these venues in far-off Pitt Street, Sydney, to hear the famous murderer speak. Apart from Butler, the most famous person in San Francisco in February of 1897 was the boxer Gentleman Jim Corbett, then preparing for his epic fight with Bob Fitzsimmons. As is often the case in our times, celebrity attracts celebrity, and so Gentleman Jim was among those who made the pilgrimage to see Butler in his cell. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Butler's hearing continued on Monday, and the Australian police soon learned one of the peculiarities of the local law process was that courts only sat for a few hours a day. Their hopes of having Butler on the next steamer to Sydney dwindled further as the attorneys for the accused laid out the defence strategy they thought would prevent him from being returned to Australia. The lawyers argued that the court had no jurisdiction over Butler as a British subject who'd been taken into custody aboard a British ship. They claimed the complaints against him were not sufficiently established and thus didn't meet the requirements of an indictable offence under the Great Britain-United States Extradition Treaty. And, as he hadn't been charged with a crime committed on American soil, Butler was thus being deprived of his liberty in violation of the United States Constitution. While the defence's case was convoluted, the prosecution's was straightforward. They sought merely to establish that the accused was not Lee Weller and that there was sufficient evidence he'd murdered the real Lee Weller back in Australia. Testimony began with Sergeant Bunner giving his account of the arrest on Swanhilda and saying that during this, Butler had told him that a photo of Mrs. Weller found in the portmanteau was that of his wife. A mariner named Captain McAllister testified that he'd known the real Lee Weller in Newcastle and said that the man in court was not him. In response, Butler's defence now went on a remarkable offensive. His attorneys demanded the return of the portmanteau and its contents because they belonged to their client. This was a wild move, demanding that the crucial evidence in the case be turned over to them to do as they wanted with it. When this motion was refused, Butler's attorneys doubled down by presenting a bill of sale for the goods, saying that by seizing them, the authorities had bought them, 
and they'd have to pay $299.99. Naturally, the state's counter move was to claim the portmanteau and its contents were evidence and the proceeds of a serious crime. Yet, Butler's demands forced the authorities, both American and British, to jump through all sorts of legal and diplomatic hoops. Ultimately, there'd be three separate legal proceedings arising from this ridiculous demand, and it'd tie up proceedings for weeks, as was intended. As February ticked by, the proceedings in the circuit court ground on before Commissioner Heacock, who heard more than a dozen depositions from Australian witnesses who said they'd seen Frank Butler with the real Lee Weller. The defence tried, unsuccessfully, to have these statements struck from the record because they'd not been certified by the US Consul in Australia, and this further violated Butler's constitutional rights. Detectives Roche and McHattie testified about their encounters with Lee Weller and what they knew of the contents of the portmanteau. Despite all of this, Butler's attorneys moved unsuccessfully for dismissal due to lack of evidence. The American authorities countered by introducing a second charge, the murder of Arthur Preston. On it went. Frank Butler had initially claimed to the newspapers that he was all for going back to Australia as soon as possible. Now, though, he'd warmed to the idea of staying in San Francisco, saying, quote, Even if the court does order my extradition, it is not at all likely that the matter will end there. After referring to the various legal avenues his lawyers still had open to them, he continued, quote, I think it may be many months before I am sent back to Australia, if, indeed, I ever am. While he waited, Butler said he was going to write an autobiography. That turned out to be a lengthy piece that was published in the San Francisco Examiner on the 26th of February, in which, as we heard in part one, he claimed to have been born in Warwickshire, England in 1858, under the name John Newman. His parents, he said, kept the boats in. Butler would later claim the examiner had paid him for a story and he'd just made it all up. If that was the case, though, he did so with remarkable fidelity to the real John Newman. While birth and census records weren't easily accessible then, they are now via ancestry.com.au and they show there was a John Newman born at this place and time, who was the son of the man who kept that pub. Many other parts of Butler's story correlate with the available military record of John Newman. While it is possible that Butler murdered the real man and took his identity, there aren't any stories about John Newman, former soldier in the Sudan and Egypt, mysteriously going missing in the late 1880s, the way that the disappearances of Lee Weller and Arthur Preston were reported in Australia before their bodies were found. On the 26th of February, the same day Butler's life story appeared, newspapers also carried reports of how he was to be sent onwards to his likely death. Commissioner Heacock had ruled Butler would be remanded in the custody of US Marshal Barry Baldwin until the about-to-be-sworn-in President William McKinley authorised his extradition. A certified copy of Commissioner Heacock's ruling was to be sent to Washington. Three days after this decision, the San Francisco Examiner reported, Butler got his hands on two and a half grains of morphine, which he swallowed in a suicide attempt, though the drug's only effect was to cause him to be surly for a couple of days. 
There was no way the extradition papers would be returned in time for the Australian police and their prisoner to board the next steamer to Sydney, leaving San Francisco on the 4th of March. Their patients wearing thin, the detectives went to Butler and asked him to give up the fight, promising he'd get a fair trial in Australia. Butler said sorry, he had to decline and he still expected to remain in San Francisco for the foreseeable future. His attorneys didn't give up, seeking his release in the circuit court on habeas corpus for lack of evidence, and again arguing his arrest and detention had been unlawful and in violation of the Constitution. On the 8th of March, newly sworn in President McKinley approved Butler's extradition and his new Secretary of State, John Sherman, signed the necessary papers. On the 17th of March, these papers received and his attorneys out of options, Butler was taken from the city prison to the county jail, where he'd be under the special watch of three guards until he was extradited. The Australian detectives had made arrangements to return to Sydney with their prisoner on the steamer Mariposa due to leave San Francisco on Saturday the 3rd of April. Rather than keep Butler in steerage for this voyage, where he'd be in the orbit of other passengers and crew, they'd take two first-class stateroom cabins. Not that the murderer would be travelling in luxury, because his cabin was to be stripped of comforts. He'd sleep on a bunk and be chained to a big steel ring that had been bolted into the centre of the floor. During the voyage, Butler would be watched at all times by two of the three Australian policemen, who'd work on four-hour rotating shifts. As his extradition approached, all hope seemed lost for Butler, yet he still had a trick up his sleeve, or thought he did. On the 24th of March, Butler made a murder confession. That was to the 1887 killing of an American soldier in Washington state. Butler claimed he'd committed this crime when he'd been stationed there in the army just before one of his many desertions. He named the man he'd supposedly killed and the San Francisco Chronicle investigated, finding that there had been a man of this name, but that he'd committed suicide and done so several months after Butler had left the area. The newspaper, like the police, concluded Butler was simply angling to be charged with a crime in America to avoid extradition. When American authorities failed to take the bait, Butler made a more dramatic and desperate move. At the county jail in the early hours of Friday the 2nd of April, while his warders shot the breeze nearby, Butler reclined on his bunk under a blanket with a newspaper over his face. Using a wire nail he'd taken from a wall gas fitting, he sliced into his wrist and dug into his temple. Going into the cell to check on him, a guard found the prisoner bleeding heavily. A doctor was summoned and he pronounced that Butler's wounds were relatively minor. He'd suffered nothing more serious than blood loss and was quickly patched up. Later that day, defiantly playing to the newspapers, Butler said, quote, This is not the last attempt I shall make. They will never land Richard Newman alive in Australia. The San Francisco Examiner, which had broken the Richard Newman identity, had one final scoop. This was Butler's actual confession, though he'd later claim they'd made it up. The newspaper said Butler told them that Lee Weller had been badly hung over that morning in Glenbrook, and to ease his suffering, he'd gone to take a bath in Glenbrook Creek. When he didn't return after some time, Butler had gone to find him. On that bush track, Butler encountered Lee Weller, who angrily accused him of deception and came at him with a gun. 
the examiner quoted Butler. He attempted to fire the pistol when I grappled with him and succeeded in wrenching it from him. He was evidently crazed with drink, for he wheeled around and, grasping the pick, started at me again. It was a desperate situation, and it meant my life or his. I dodged to one side just as he struck at me, and as he fell forward by the force of his own blow, I fired. Okay, so how about Arthur Preston? The examiner said Butler admitted killing him too, and that, again, it had been self-defense. Butler and Preston had argued, and the young man had shot at him and missed. As Preston had gone to fire again, Butler had shot him dead with his rifle. So, two desperate acts of self-defense. Why, pray tell, had Butler not gone to the authorities? He had an answer for that. Quote, I did not think it necessary to report the matter to the police for the simple reason that such things are everyday occurrences in Australia. I believe that I will be able to prove my innocence before the courts of New South Wales. The Australian police and their American law enforcement colleagues took Butler to the Mariposa on Saturday morning, the 3rd of April. Just as they had been for the past two months, the San Francisco newspaper men were there. Faced with the reality of a three-week voyage to his doom, the prisoner's brave facade melted away. The examiner reported, quote, the strain under which he has laboured for two months past proved too much for the murderer at last. He broke down utterly and became a cringing, abject coward. No longer was he the vainglorious, impudent, confident scoundrel buoyed up by the hope that in the ingenuity of lawyers and the lax judicial methods of the country in which he has sought asylum from outraged justice would find safety. The vision of that gallows in faraway Australia was before him. He cowered away in a corner of his cabin. He sought to avoid the gaze of the crowd. In that Mariposa stateroom, Detective Roche said to the newspaper men that this change had come over Butler because, quote, he knows that he is going where he will receive short shrift and a stout rope. Butler heard this, and when the examiner reporter asked for a comment, the usually voluble prisoner said only, can't you let me bide alone? Don't you see I ain't feeling well? Then he closed his eyes as if wishing everyone and everything away. Chatting to the American authorities and newspaper men, Detective Roche explained that when Butler reached Australia, he wouldn't be selling autographs and making phonograph recordings. Rather, he'd be allowed to see his lawyer for half an hour a day and receive one visitor per week. The examiner remarked, quote, this will be the hardest of all for the murderer to bear. He probably dreads those three months before he mounts the gallows more than he fears the death. It was like the breath of life of him to receive the visit of the crowds of people that flocked to see him while he was confined in the city prison. He never tired of posing for them and talking to them. He made himself believe that he was regarded as a hero. The curiosity of the rabble was to his mind admiration bestowed upon a popular idol. At 9.30 that morning, when the Mariposa had pushed away from the dock, the American authorities formally placed Butler in the custody of the Australian police. Then they bid their Antipodean colleagues good luck and godspeed before returning to shore. In the first few days of the voyage, Butler was troublesome, refusing to eat and behaving belligerently. Under the threat of a straitjacket, he settled down somewhat. 
Butler was allowed to order whatever he liked from the onboard menu, though he was only given a spoon with which to eat meals already cut up and deboned by the police to stop him from doing any further mischief to himself. He was also given whiskey, reportedly a dram in the morning and one at night. Whether the prisoner liked it or not, his captors took him, handcuffed and chained, onto the deck at 3 o'clock every morning to walk him around so he had some exercise. They were determined to keep him healthy and get him to Australia alive. Butler's moods fluctuated from jovial and boastful to surly and aggressive. At night, detectives would say, he'd often cry out in his dreams as if haunted by ghosts of his past. One thing sure to calm his waking hours were regular visits by another celebrity aboard. That was the Australian-American singer and actress Maggie Moore, then wife of theatre impresario J.C. Williamson. Though Australian police denied scandalous reports they'd let Maggie and Butler have sing-alongs, they did admit she'd often chatted to him from the cabin doorway and on one occasion may have hummed a tune for his pleasure. During the long voyage, police claimed Butler made all sorts of threats and confessions. Under extradition law, he could only be tried in Australia on the charges on which he'd been extradited. No matter what, he wouldn't face a jury for killing Charles Burgess or for any other crimes that came to light. Freed from consequence, Butler, according to Detective Roche, confessed to the murder of Burgess, saying he'd done the man in because he'd tried to cheat him with a bad check. In terms of confessions, there were many more to come after Mariposa arrived in Auckland on the morning of Friday the 23rd of April. Sydney's daily newspapers had all sent special representatives, and they didn't just board Mariposa and interview Butler and the police. These reporters spent the next three days on the ship as it steamed back to Sydney and had plenty of access to the prisoner and his captors. As a result, the papers would run extensive stories packed with descriptions of Butler's tempers and outbursts, confessions and denials, and what the police claimed he'd said and done over the past three weeks. Mariposa steamed through Sydney Heads at four in the afternoon on Tuesday the 27th of April. Handcuffed, in leg irons and tied up, Butler was transferred to a water police launch and taken ashore at Elizabeth Bay by the three Australian police officers. More than five months after Lee Weller was first reported missing, detectives Roche and McHattie and Constable Conroy had done it. They'd gotten Butler back to Australia. Butler was taken in a cab to Darlinghurst Jail. There, a court was convened, so the Penrith coroner, who'd conducted the inquests on Lee Weller and Arthur Preston, could hear Detective Roche and Constable Conroy identify Butler formally. That done, the accused was committed for trial during the next sitting of the criminal court, scheduled from the 31st of May. The Sydney newspapers now ran the stories they'd gotten during Mariposa's cross-Tasman voyage. The Daily Telegraph's report included the claim that on Mariposa it had been an open secret that Butler had confessed to the murder of Charles Burgess knowing he couldn't be tried on the charge. The Daily Telegraph also said Butler was likely responsible for an unsolved murder at Cootamundra around 1895. The paper ran this quote from Butler. I've got 14 murders and about 20 big robberies to tell you about, but it's too soon yet. I'm not going to show my hand until I see what the Crown will do in Sydney. 
I don't know yet what charge I will be tried on and I want a lot of particulars before I prepare my defence, but I'll send for you and tell you all about them later on. Butler, the Daily Telegraph said, had confessed to killing a school chum, his wife and several more people in Western Australia. Its reporter observed, He can chatter away about foul murders of which he accuses himself with as much unconcern as a waiter rattling off a menu. The Daily Telegraph wasn't taking any of this at face value. Quote, He is a most inconsistent man in his statements. One minute, he confesses naively to a few dozen murders and gloats over his fine performances. And anon, he declaims violently against the newspaper writers who accuse him of crime and declares that he is innocent of the many charges levelled against him. Butler was particularly vehement that the San Francisco newspapers had made up everything about him, including that confession he supposedly gave to the examiner. The problem with the Australian press coverage was that the Daily Telegraph, along with the Evening News, Australian Star and Sydney Morning Herald, published these claims by Butler and made commentary about them the day after he'd been committed to stand trial for murder. And that was contempt of court. Butler had pleaded that he was a pauper and so was assigned legal defence headed by a Sydney lawyer named Walter Edmonds. Walter Edmonds cited all four newspapers for contempt of court, claiming that publishing these stories had prejudiced his client's right to a fair trial, and the full court ruled in Butler's favour, fining each publication £100. Walter Edmonds then applied to the full court to have any murder trial postponed for six months so that the public sentiment drummed up by this newspaper coverage could simmer down. Yet here, Butler's willingness to parlay with the press backfired. The Chief Justice, Frederick Daly, inquired into how the reporters had gotten their stories. He learned that Butler had requested they be allowed aboard Mariposa in Auckland so he could deny every little thing printed about him in San Francisco. The Chief Justice said that Butler had wanted these articles printed and now he couldn't complain about their appearance. He said it was the atrocity of the crimes themselves rather than the newspaper stories that had stirred the public mind and that a jury would be instructed to disregard anything they'd heard or read about the murders. Delaying the trial, the Chief Justice said, would risk the disappearance or death of witnesses, so there would be no postponement. The man known as Frank Butler was to be tried for the murder of Lee Weller at Darlinghurst's Central Criminal Court starting on Monday the 14th of June. If somehow this case failed, that meant the Crown could still try him for the murder of Arthur Preston. Due to overwhelming interest in the case, a ticketing system had to be used for the public galleries. Thousands of people wanted admission to the venue that could only hold 150. Those who got tickets would be granted half-day admission. Reporters were vetted to ensure they were actually on assignment from their newspapers. At 10 that Monday morning, Frank Butler was brought into court wearing a dark blue suit, looking stout and well. He pleaded not guilty to the murder of Lee Weller. The New South Wales Minister for Justice and Attorney General, Mr Jack Want, said he'd be personally prosecuting this case. Just a side note here, 
Jack Want was the colonial politician who'd owned Minionette and hired Thomas Dudley to sail it to Australia, leading to the infamous cannibalism case that we heard about in the episode The Plague of 1900. Over the next two days, the Crown called a parade of credible witnesses and tendered damning physical evidence. The chronology of Lee Weller's last days with Frank Butler was firmly established, as was the method of his death and the discovery of his body, the identification of Butler and that he'd had in his possession the murdered man's belongings. The court heard from Lee Weller's landlady, Mrs Trennan, and Lee Weller's friend, Robert Luckham from various Glenbrook residents who'd seen the men during their fateful mining trip, from the swaggy Butler had tried to frame, and from those who'd met him under the Lee Weller guise in Newcastle. Detective McHattie, Detective Roche, and Constable Conroy testified about their interactions with the real Lee Weller, with Frank Butler, their knowledge of the dead man's possessions, and their chase and capture of the wanted man in San Francisco. They also testified to some of what Butler had said while on Mariposa, including that if he'd known he was going to be arrested on Swanhilda, he would have come out shooting and killed them all. Despite this murderous intent, the police told the court that the last of Butler's confessions had come just before Swanhilda reached Sydney. Butler had told them that he and Lee Weller had been with two other men in Glenbrook when the sea captain had sadly committed suicide. Problem was, the court had also heard medical evidence that it wasn't possible Lee Weller had committed suicide because even if he'd managed the angle to shoot himself in the back of the head, the close-range shot would have left contact burns and lacerations. The Crown had almost concluded its case on the Tuesday night and court was adjourned till 10 the next morning. When that hour arrived, the Chief Justice, the attorneys and the accused, none of them appeared in court. What was happening? Word spread that Butler had for the third time tried to cheat the gallows, having used a little tin tag from his tobacco pouch to slash his throat. Again, the wound was superficial. Court reporters and spectators soon heard the sounds of struggle from the subterranean tunnel that led up to the dock. Down there, Butler, his neck bandaged, was fighting four police officers and a warder though it was to no avail and these men succeeded in hauling him into court. They sat Butler on a bench in the dock, wrists handcuffed behind his back and positioned themselves around him to put down any further outburst. The accused lapsed into a sort of exhausted stupor, barely able to respond to his counsel. The Crown rested its case at 11 and Walter Edmonds said his client wanted to make a statement but was apparently now unable to speak presumably on account of his throat wound and his very recent exertions. Could Butler tender a written statement? The Chief Justice ruled that it wasn't permitted by law. After much toing and froing, a compromise was reached, under which Butler would whisper his statements to Mr Edmonds, who'd then relate them to the court. Using this method, Butler told the court of Lee Weller's final moments that Saturday morning, the 31st of October, 1896. Quote, Weller and myself walked towards Glenbrook Gully. He had got over his drinking but was very surly and melancholy and had been so the two previous days, evidently being in great trouble about his wife's death. Butler, via Edmonds, continued, quote, 
I suggested that we should return to Sydney by the 3pm train. He said, no, I am not going back to Sydney anymore. He pulled out his trouser pocket, right hand, where he kept his money and said, see, I have no money. I knew he had a revolver with him loaded. Butler went on. I saw him place his hand in his left hand trousers pocket and pull out the pistol. I jumped off and stepped back a few feet and thought he might be using it on me. His head was resting on his hand. He appeared to be studying. All at once, he put his revolver to his head and when I saw what he was going to do, I immediately grabbed the revolver and forced it behind. In doing so, the revolver went off. Weller fell dead. Knowing I was his mate and had been seen in his company, I was afraid to go and report it to the police. Butler said he'd only had a pick, which was why the bush grave was so small, and he claimed that Lee Weller had previously said that if anything should happen to him, he, Butler, was to collect the portmanteau and ensure the master's certificate and sentimental items be returned to his solicitor in London. The other things, Butler said he'd felt free to sell. Butler denied ever claiming the portmanteau or its contents as his own, and said whatever supposed confessions he'd made to the cops on Mariposa had been made under the influence of the whiskey the police had plied him with. A doctor testified that Butler's struggle story was a possible explanation for the bullet wound that had killed Lee Weller. Butler's defence counsel, Mr Edmonds, claimed it was perfectly understandable that his client had left Australia using Lee Weller's certificate, both in fear of being falsely accused and because he wanted to honour his dead mate's request by getting to England and delivering the sentimental items in the portmanteau. In response, the Crown reminded the jury that after Lee Weller's death, Frank Butler had placed further advertisements with the aim of taking other men to the bush and to their fates. Of course, though it couldn't be introduced, the 12 men of the jury also knew what had happened to Arthur Preston and Charles Burgess, and try as they might, it's hard to believe they could successfully keep this from their minds. Summing up, the Attorney General said that if Butler was innocent, he was the unluckiest man ever born because he'd woven a web of evidence around himself so tightly that no jury could doubt his guilt. The jury, having been reminded by the Chief Justice to consider only the facts put before them and to disregard everything else, retired at 6.20 that evening. They returned about 80 minutes later to deliver their verdict. Guilty. The Chief Justice asked Butler if he had anything to say. Butler, via his lawyer, again denied shooting Lee Weller and said the trial had been held too soon after all that newspaper coverage. The Chief Justice then said that Butler had been found guilty of a quote, most cruel and atrocious murder and that he couldn't expect earthly mercy. He pronounced that Butler should be hanged, concluding, may the Lord have mercy upon your soul. Now Butler found his voice, shooting back loudly, and may the Lord have mercy on yours. In the coming weeks, Butler's lawyers unsuccessfully sought leave to appeal on the basis that their client's extradition had been illegal and thus the entire trial should be voided. With his appeals going nowhere, in Darlinghurst Jail, Frank Butler seemed to lose his bluster and become resigned to his fate. He sought solace in the ministrations of Reverend George Lane. On Thursday the 15th of July, the day before he was due to be hanged, 
Butler made his final confession to Darlinghurst Jail's governor. He admitted to the murders of Lee Weller, Arthur Preston and Charles Burgess. He also said he'd committed a great many other crimes for which he should have been hanged a dozen times over. Butler made a will leaving a few of his possessions to a sister in England. This led to a final question about his identity. The authorities claimed to know who he was and denied that his name was Butler, Ash, Newman or any other alias so far published. The Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, Authorities are now in possession of his real name, also know where his relatives, who are fairly well-to-do, are living. But it is thought that no good purpose could be served and pain would be caused to his relatives if the name were disclosed. For my money, this was misinformation, either a mistake or the authorities obfuscating so that the living Newmans wouldn't be troubled in England. Further evidence for this was actually provided in that very same Sydney Morning Herald story when it quoted in full an 1886 letter known to have been written by Butler. This letter had been to apply for the Canadian Mounted Police. In it, he cited his British military experiences and references before signing off as John Newman. Dressed in jailhouse uniform and slippers, Butler prayed with Reverend Lane on the morning of Friday, the 16th of July, 1897. The minister would later say the condemned man gave every indication of having made a full contrition. Outside Darlinghurst Jail's gates and in Green Park across the road, thousands of people had gathered. This was Butler's last crowd, but no one saw anything. The prison's huge stone walls prevented any glimpse at all, and only 16 officials were allowed inside to witness the execution. At 9am, Butler was led from his cell and took the few steps to the gallows. There waited his hangman, Robert Howard, known to all as Nosy Bob, whose story we'll hear in another episode. This infamous executioner fixed a knot under Butler's left ear and pulled down the cap. Nosy Bob told his assistant, let go. In the instant before the command was obeyed, Butler managed to get the last word, let go, he repeated, before dropping seven and a half feet to his instant death. As Detective Roche had predicted, the monster of the Blue Mountains got short shrift and a stout rope. So, what was Frank Butler's motivation for killing three men? We can only guess, but compared with the risk that he took, he profited very little from his crimes. This seemed to indicate that he killed for the thrill, knowing what his victims were in for when he placed the ads and then stringing them along on their expeditions over days or, in the case of Burgess, weeks. While Butler was guilty of three murders, in his final confession, he strongly hinted at being involved in the killing of a fourth man named Davis, though he wouldn't say more, saying he didn't want to implicate other guilty parties. True or more lies? We'll never know, nor will we know if he really was guilty of murders in England, South America, the United States and Western Australia, as he'd claimed at various times. As we've heard, Butler was a prodigious liar, so it's likely that many of these stories were just made up. That said, 
It also seems likely that Butler did have other victims because he murdered three men in less than three months and only good fortune stopped him from claiming several more lives during that rampage in 1896. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. On a bit of a creepy note, while researching this episode, I discovered that the bush cottage I used to live in at Glenbrook was right near where Lee Weller's body was found. I'm glad I didn't know that at the time. Forgotten Australia will be back with new episodes soon, as will Australia on this day. In the meantime, if you've got a moment, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating for either or both shows at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I love reading your feedback and it also helps the shows reach other people. Forgotten Australia and Australia on this day are produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.